If this was a normal year, many of us would have gotten ready for a large Thanksgiving meal this past week. Or at the very least, we would have gotten ready to battle the millions of other travelers on the roads and airports this Thanksgiving weekend. And for many of us who are super type A, getting ready is something that we are attracted to. We love to make lists like Adriana and and Rich were sharing with us. We love to research options and analyze and determine the most effective time to travel or figure out the best way to put together your Thanksgiving meal. And, And if you're that kind of person, maybe you're depressed a little bit this year because COVID has changed everything. And then there's the rest of us who, where getting ready is a huge burden. Actually, having to think about getting ready is challenging. In fact, getting up to get ready is tough enough. And this year's COVID pandemic has actually made things a little bit easier in some ways for those of us who don't like to make lists and, and, and get through them. We don't have to get up as early to commute or, uh, or, get, or get up as early as we used to. But we still have to look presentable for some of our Zoom meetings if we work at home, at least the top half of ourselves. You can't see what I'm not wearing below. Come on, we know that this isn't the only guy to do this, right? The Advent, word Advent comes from the Latin word meaning arrival, as Karin mentioned earlier. It marks the season before Christmas where we re- remember Christ's first arrival and look forward to Christ's second arrival. And as we begin this Advent season, it's an opportunity to reflect on how we might be getting ready as God's people for the life to come and for the arrival of Jesus. As we concluded the series on Corinthians last week, reflecting on the resurrection, we are encouraged to frame our present life in light of the life to come. Our life now is a constant state of readiness. The question is, are we living in that way? Today, as we begin our Advent series entitled On the Road, we'll be proceeding through the season of Advent and Christmas, recognizing that our preparation for this life to come is an ongoing journey. We're never going to fully arrive at the destination until Jesus returns again. But between now and then, we can proceed with an attitude of readiness. We can do that ready for change and ready with grace and ready with hope. Now, if you've ever planned for a road trip, there's always the dilemma of choosing to drive on interstates and expressways or the secondary highways that are more scenic but pass through the small towns. Primed for efficiency for those with plans to get to places quickly and the means to pay for the tolls, maybe the interstate or the toll expressways like the New Jersey Turnpike are those concrete zip lines that take you from one place to another, where you stop only for fuel at the rest stops with the same gas stations and the same fast food restaurants every 20 miles. Now these expressways bypass the reality of small town economies and the people who live there. And if you take some of these secondary bypass highways, they often will pass through the main streets of these towns. Some of them are nice, but some of them are run down and have shuttered businesses. And you can't help but think of who lives there and how those businesses might survive. You think of the young people who grow up in these small rural towns and consider what kind of future lies ahead for them in these parts of America. Statistics from the last two elections indicate that counties that voted for Democratic candidates reflected an increasingly larger and larger portion of the American economy. If you look at the blue 
uh, those are the blue counties, and the size of them reflect the size of their economies. Yet these counties, which are urban, are also areas where there is tremendous disparity between the haves and the have-nots, often along racial lines. A question for us is, who is really crying out for change? In Isaiah, the prophet uh, reads, uh, d describes this, uh, this cry for change that God's people are ready for. Things aren't going the way that they expect. And this is not a quiet and polite petition. It's a cry for intervention. Tear apart the heavens, God. Come down. Let the mountains tremble before your presence. Let the ground shake. Let the forests be consumed with fire and geysers shoot from the ground. Let creation signal to the need for powers and empires to take notice of this need for change. And this cry is re repeated by the psalmist in Psalm 80 that was part of our call to worship today. Saying, come and save us, O Lord. Restore us, God. And make your face to shine upon us that we might be saved. This too is a cry for change. The life that God's people were experiencing was far from what was envisioned. Their neighbors have ravaged the land and the people of Israel. And the lived reality for God's people were tears and mockery. And while faithful Israel was supposed to be the envy of the world, drawing the world into the light of God's presence because of Israel's moral purity, because of their social justice, and because of their political stability, the current situation for Israel was opposite of how things should be. Yet, what was the source of the problem? Both Isaiah and Asaph, the writer of Psalm 80, don't point the finger at the other person or those on the other side, or those who hold power. They acknowledge those things, but in crying out for change and salvation, they are honest with their part in the problem. In Isaiah 65, verse 5 and 7, it says, You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? No one calls on your name and strives to lay a hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have given us over to our sins. The readiness for change begins with an honest recognition of our need for God to save us from something we can't solve ourselves. It's a cry out to God for salvation and forgiveness. It's a cry out to God for the world to be set right. It's a cry out to God to judge enemies and to come to the help of those who trust in the Lord. But there's this problem of sin that needs to be dealt with. And where does change for that come from? In verse 4, the answer we find that the answer to our cries does not come from within us. It must come from outside of us. Isaiah points to God's uniqueness in this verse. You see, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is distinct and very different from all the other gods in the ancient Near East. For the Israelites, Yahweh is transcendent. He's not locked into the material universe like the gods of Mesopotamia who inhabited the material world. Secondly, the Lord is one, unlike the multiple gods who shared a multiplicity of power. There is one God who hold, held all power. And the God of Israel is willing to act on behalf of faithful followers and does not need to be bribed by the, his worshipers. The gods of Israel's contemporaries required gifts from humans to provide for the deity in order to get a kind response from the gods. Or sometimes the worshippers needed to do these magic rituals to, to force the god 
to do the desired action. But the God of the Israelites was not this kind of God. The Lord God of Israel initiated first and acts on behalf of those who wait for God. The Advent season is an opportunity for us to prepare for Jesus' arrival by honestly naming how our world isn't the way as it should be. It's a time for us to voice our longing for change that doesn't come merely from our own initiative, from our intelligence or our strength, but the change comes from out the outside by the initiative of God who loves us and loves the world we live in. And the historical reality of Christ's first arrival into this world is what provides grounds for this second arrival. So our readiness is not done in vain. Our preparation is not done out of a place of fear or of loss or of shame, but out of this place of fullness and assurance that God's promises are sure and that God's promise to bring change is also sure. In 1 Corinthians, Paul begins his letter to a proud and divided Corinthian church, reminding that they are a community of grace. He says to them in verses 3 and 4, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God, my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. You know, all the gifts and all their speech and all their knowledge came not because they were smart or worked hard or because they were talented, but because they were, they were a result of God's grace at work in them. So their actions as a community were meant to reflect that grace. As the question is, we use the word grace and then people are named grace, but what is grace? Compare it to the ideas of justice and mercy. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace, though, is something very different, is getting what you don't deserve. You see, justice says, if you do something wrong, you got to pay for it. Or if someone else does something wrong, then they need to make amends and they need to pay the punishment. Or in a more positive light, if you put in the hard work and live a good life, then you'll be rewarded for it. If you get ready in this life, then you'll reap the rewards in the next life. It's how many of us believe the world to work. America's value of meritocracy is built on this value idea of justice. Mercy says, though you have, may have done something wrong and you may, you may deserve punishment or maybe you deserve the situation you find yourself in because of the choices you made, I'm not going to hold it against you. That's what mercy is compared to justice. But grace is giving you what you do not deserve. Though you might have done something wrong and deserve punishment, you do not receive that. In fact, you get more. You get forgiveness and love. The gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that our place before God to be set right in, relation, right in relationship with God through faith in Christ and to even be loved by God is an act of God's grace. We don't deserve any of this because of something called sin that affects all humans, no matter how smart or moral we might be. And to recognize the reality of sin in our lives is not meant to heap shame upon us, but is to humbly acknowledge the incredible reality of God's grace. 
You see, we would never even consider looking to God, or we would not even look to our own hearts and recognize the waywardness in, that we find in there if it was not first for God's movement towards us out of love. That's the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection that brings everything for us. We can uh, bring everything and acknowledge our sin humbly without, and that there's problems in this world without being overwhelmed by that reality. That's why Paul is able to say, because of God's grace in verse 7 and 8, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you firm to the end. Because of God's grace, you lack nothing as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we lack nothing while we wait? We stand in this posture of fullness and assurance with grace, not with entitled pride and self-righteousness. We stand in grace because of this promise that it's our Lord Jesus that keeps us firm until the end. It's our Lord Jesus that helps us stand guiltless in judgment. When we put our trust in Christ, we discover that we have already been justified. We have already been declared right before God. We have already been made ready for the most important thing in the future. But we have a long way to go before our behavior matches that status before God. But Paul is confident that God who is faithful will make the Corinthian church and us who put our trust in Christ to be as we should be. As we learned last week in the final chapter of 1 Corinthians, knowing the end of this story changes everything. For those who follow Christ, the end of the story is assured, and so we live with that end in mind. We wait, we prepare, we stand in the state of readiness, not with fear of the unknown, but with fullness of God's presence and love in the world. We extend grace to those around us who are hurting. We extend grace to those who are angry, those who might be depressed, and those who disagree with us because we can actually see ourselves in them. We can extend grace towards them. Except for the grace of God at work in our hearts, we would find ourselves in the same place. God's grace changes how we interact with others in the present and how we look towards our future. And this leads us to the final posture of readiness as we wait. We stand ready with hope. You know, Mark records Jesus' teachings about the signs of his impending return. Jesus draws on these images from Jewish scriptures that tell of these cosmic events that precede Jesus' arrival. In Mark chapter 13, he says, But in those days, following the distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will, will not give its light, the, uh, the stars will fall from the skies, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. In verse 29, when Jesus says, when you see these things take place, he's not just referring to the, the passage I just read, but earlier in the chapter about wars and rumors of wars and nations in conflict and earthquakes and famines and persecution of the church and false teachers that do amazing things. And in verse 24 that I just read, Jesus refers to all these sources of light in the cosmos going dark prior to the Son of Man returning in the clouds. Now we've Often, the Christian church has often read these images as conveying chaos 
that chaos has prevailed and that chaos has, has to prevail in order for Jesus to return. And those of us might think that, that we're ready because we know how to recognize when chaos is prevailing. And they might, they might think that reading and interpreting these world events of crises and wars and pandemics and conspiracies is the best way to prepare. But what we do find happens is when we prepare this way, this preparation is driven by fear and judgment rather than hope. I mean, just look at America's global export of zombie and apocalyptic movies. In fact, I did a search this week. Did you know that the top website hit, if you search for zombie preparedness, yes, that actually is a thing, okay? If you search for zombie preparedness, the top page is the Center for Disease Control, a federal agency, because they found it so effective to share actual education for, for uh, the hazards of our life by providing uh, for people who are searching for zombie preparedness. What is this? Why am I sharing this? It's, it's saying that we are a nation that is pathologically driven by fear, and that even cre creeps into our Christian faith. We're fear of being controlled. We're afraid of being unable to defend ourselves, a free, fear of losing our freedom, and even fear of being persecuted and suffering for the name of Jesus. But Jesus told us that would happen. But the words of Mark here describe the end times. Describing the end times are not meant to instill dread and horror, but they're meant to instill confidence and hope. One commentator, George Beasley Murray, suggests how this collapse of the cosmos is not meant to be seen in terror and confusion, something to be afraid of ahead of Jesus' return. Instead, he says, the elements of creation go into confusion and fear because he appears, not as a sign that he is about to do so. They, they come, they are, they are evidence because Jesus is about to arrive, not as a sign that he is about to do so. There is no sign that warns of his coming. The imagery instead highlights the glory of Christ's coming. All creation will tremble in fear because of Jesus' arrival, not as a sign of it. It's kind of like how animals, if you've ever heard anecdotes about how animals are able to anticipate an earthquake before even human technology can measure them. This year, German scientists have managed to precisely measure increased activities in groups of farm animals before seismic activity. Their observations indicate that animals would change their behavior hours prior to the earthquakes. Cows would freeze, and then the dogs would notice and start barking, which would cause the cows to go crazier, which would then cause the sheep to, go, to, to respond differently. Like animals can respond to an impending earthquake, it would seem that all creation is, in, is able in some ways to recognize the arrival of Jesus and change their behavior because of that. The chaos of the world points to the return of Christ and when he renews all things. So we can be ready too, not with fear and terror, but with incredible hope and grace because we know what's happening. Jesus gives indicators of the end to come, but not the timing of when everything will unfold. So he says in verse 33, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. You know, as the monologue suggested, our job is, is to be ready, is not to answer the question of when it's going to happen. The question that Rich asked in the monologue is, 
Will you be ready? So what does this mean practically? You know, we can look to the world and say, we're ready for things to change. The pandemic continues to reveal the tremendous inequities in, this wealthy, in the wealthiest nation of the world. In a nation that has one of the most advanced healthcare systems and the brightest minds, more than one-third of the nation doesn't have access to adequate health care. While many of, many of us log into our retirement accounts and celebrate that the Dow has hit 30,000 points for the first time in its history, only a select few benefit from this wealth. You see, 84% of the stock market is owned by 10% of Americans who are already rich. We're ready for our world to become more equitable when it comes to wealth and also when it comes to race relations. And maybe closer to the church in America, the term evangelical has now become understood as more of a political affiliation than the historical meaning of a faith that prioritizes following Christ and the priority of Scripture in faith formation. We're ready for a change in how the Christian faith is perceived as well. We're ready for change in healthcare, in wealth, race relations, and faithful expressions of faith. This year, as we begin the Advent season, let us be ready for Jesus' next arrival and for the arrival of the world to come, not with despair, not with anger, and let's not be motivated by fear or insecurity, but, with to, but we can be ready with grace and with hope. In Christ, we recognize that we have been gifted with the ultimate position of security in the world to come. For those who respond to Christ's invitation of forgiveness and fullness of life, we look forward to this world to come with incredible hope, knowing that the broken things of this world will be made new. In our work for justice, in our work for renewal in this present life is not hopeless. The change that often seems too slow for our impatient hearts is not ultimately useless. Our waiting and our readiness is not done in vain. It's not passive. It's not pathetic. Our readiness for Christ's second advent is active and pregnant with purpose in this present life because of the life to come. So my friends, wait with purpose. Wait with hope and be filled with the grace of God. Amen.